Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us. Heed our words, heed the words of President Biden. Get involved in saving American democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win. Go to jointheunion.us and join the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I've got an all-star cast, gang. I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of New York Times bestsellers, Running Against the Devil and Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Hey there, Reed. I'm also joined by legendary Democratic strategist, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, and host of That Trippy Show, available wherever your favorite podcasts are found, Joe Trippy. Joe, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. Good to be with you. And last but certainly not least, rounding out the panel is senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stuart, welcome. Thanks, Reed. Great to be here. All right. So, gang, here we are. What, seven, eight weeks from Election Day, 60 some days, if we're even that far out anymore. And I want to bring the brain trust together to get a sense of where we are. You know, we have seen this election, I think, as we normally do, slightly differently than the rest of the world, which is in Washington, D.C., you have committees, both Republican and Democrat, somewhere about the House, somewhere about the Senate, somewhere about governors on down the line. We took a different tack going back to probably even this time last year, which is we have to make this campaign about democracy. What are those states in which democracy, if a, you know, an authoritarian candidate such as a Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, a Kerry Lake in Arizona were to win, that would put American democracy in peril. And so now here we are, as we wake up and read this, you know, can you really trust the polls? Some Democrats look like they're in good shape. Some Republicans are looking strong. So, Rick, from your perch in the great state of Florida, how are we looking? Look, we are in a better position than we could have imagined we would be eight or ten weeks ago. A lot of the fundamental underpinnings of everyone's early analysis of the 2022 cycle depended on this idea that Biden was collapsing, the economy was going to be in absolute peril and turmoil, inflation would be through the roof, gas prices would continue to rise, you know, dogs and cats would be living in sin together, and it just didn't turn out that way. And, you know, inflation moderated, Biden passed a number of serious accomplishments through the legislative process, which no one thought could happen. Gas prices are coming down. He is now also clarifying the stakes of this election in a way that's very, very sharp and crisp of this is about democracy versus authoritarianism, democracy versus fascism. And that has helped reset a lot of the terrain in the 2024 election cycle. It is not over yet. It is not done. I do worry a little bit right now that some of our Democratic friends have already gotten into the what I call the picking out curtains for the office phase, where they should still be on the knocking on doors phase. We've all been around this block. 
long enough to know that the minute somebody gets complacent in the campaign is when the campaign bites you on the ass. So Democrats need to keep up the pressure, but we're certainly in a much better position than we were certainly eight weeks ago. So, Joe, you wrote a memo for us January or February of this year. It's hard to believe it was that long ago now, where you basically laid out three or four or five different things about why you thought Democrats had a better shot at being successful this fall. And some of those are coming true, one of them being that Republicans would put crazy candidates up, which they have. But give us a sense, you know, being a lifelong Democrat and working in big D Democratic politics, it seems that the president, you know, going back to Ukraine, you know, when Russia invaded, has sort of come into his own once again, culminating, as Rick noted, with a lot of legislative wins. And then last week or, you know, 10 days ago, he goes out and says, this is what this fight is about. So are you surprised that the president was able to take this mantle of leadership? Are you surprised that he was willing to go out and call out what we see as fascist authoritarianism? And are you surprised that Democrats seem to be coalescing around a message about needing to fight? A couple of things. First of all, I thought that they would keep nominating crazies, but I also thought at the time and said so that we were at the low point of the Biden presidency and that it was only up from there in terms of what he was accomplishing, what he was doing. Like you said, Ukraine and last two months have just been incredible. But the other thing, I thought it would get much worse for MAGA, Trump and the Republicans. I mean, because, again, Trump is going to be coming more on the scene now. It'll next 60 days for sure. He'll be out there campaigning. And the number of crazies that have to sort of bow to him that are running is going to be a big, heavy weight for them to carry. So, no, I, I thought back then that Democrats had a much better chance of holding the House. And I think we're seeing that today. What I'm surprised about was how long it took. I mean, we were out there talking about democracy versus autocracy, like literally from the get go coming into this cycle. And, you know, when you started to do that, people would look at you like you're a little crazy and you're exaggerating and it's not that bad. And what I think was incredible was for Biden to give that speech. And you're seeing, you know, now independents, a whole lot of voters are ranking the threat to democracy, the number one issue for them. And then, of course, with the Dobbs decision on top of it, I agree with Rick. I keep saying it. They're going to keep doing the crazy. We have to keep doing the work. If we keep doing the work, I'm very confident that one, Democrats will gain in the Senate, but two, that the House is supremely competitive. And we have an excellent chance of holding it. One of the things I just want to say is it strikes me as weird that the punditry hasn't caught up to this. When you get to Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, Georgia, those battleground Senate seats that are not ruby red or bright blue, guess what? Democrats are ahead. Every Republican is in peril. You know, the House races are in the, happening in the same country and in the same environment with Biden's numbers being wherever Biden's numbers are. There are 32 toss-up seats. Why do we think the outcome in those 32 are going to be different in the seven or eight competitive Senate seats? And why does the punditry just sort of keep pushing that? I think we have an excellent chance, but as Rick said, got to do the work, got to keep pushing. Don't let up. And that I do have that fear about Democrats in Washington, you know, starting to be exuberant about this. Right. Run like you're 10 points down. So, Stuart, you said something. I might have even been as Trump maybe had secured the nomination. And it sounded odd at the time, but it makes sense. You said leadership matters in that Trump 
was leading the Republican Party. Now, it was in a direction that none of us were willing to go, but he's certainly still leading it that way. And Joe Biden is now leading the Democratic Party. So talk to us a little bit about leading, because I think that's the one thing that we've always seen, which is, you know, many people say, OK, what does the polling look like? What does the polling look like? What does the polling look like? But we've always said you have to assert belief and that eventually people will catch up to you. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, leadership ultimately is about character. And one of the things we used to believe was a rock solid, irrefutable value of the party that we joined called the Republican Party was the character counts. In many ways, what's unfolding now all goes back to 2015. Trump was an unacceptable candidate for president. When he called for a Muslim ban in December of 2015, the party should have walked away from him. They didn't. So everything that has played out in many ways is almost inevitable. Once the Republican Party decided that it cared about nothing but winning and would do a deal with a guy who promised him power, even if he was against everything that they had held as a deeply held belief, they would go along with it. So here we are. They've lost the presidency. They've lost the House. They've lost the Senate. They're desperate to get rid of Trump, but they've had chances to get rid of Trump and they can't do it. They don't have the character to do it. Mitch McConnell doesn't have the character to go out and vote to convict, which would have gotten rid of Trump. And look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden, he goes out there in the primaries, loses two primaries, basically being written off. And if you've ever been inside a campaign that's losing, that is a high profile campaign, the hydraulic pressure to change your message to try to reinvent yourself. It's just tremendous from donors, from staff, from everybody, you know. And I'd like to say I'd, I was always a guy in that room that said, no, 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 that would be a terrible idea. But I wasn't always that guy. So one of the things that has always really impressed me about Biden and the world that he has around him is they decided that they were going to win or lose with the guy they had. So that is leadership. That is I am going to be who I am. And I think playing that long game has served him well. I mean, a year ago, all anybody was talking about was what a debacle it was leaving Afghanistan. I thought at the time, if Americans didn't care about Afghanistan, particularly when Americans were dying, the odds that they would care about it when Americans weren't dying seemed less, not greater to me. And a year is a long time. I mean, we are perhaps on the verge of one of the great historical moments of our lifetime, of Russia being defeated by Ukraine with help by the United States under Joe Biden's leadership. And it's about ultimately character, not about performance. And I think that's something that we're being reminded of. So, Rick, let's talk about the vacuum of character that is the Republican leadership. So obviously we've got Trump and we'll spend some more time on him later. But now you also see that Mitch McConnell is fighting with Rick Scott. Rick Scott, you know, famously blew $158 million in the first eight months of the year, leaving them, you know, pikers as they head into the final weeks of the campaign. You know, the Republicans made a deal with a guy named Peter Thiel, long of Facebook, PayPal, and elsewhere. And now he's got two guys who, you know, he said he'd support financially. Now he's not doing it. And McConnell is complaining that he's got a bunch of bad candidates, which he knew he was going to get. Rick, are these people getting what they deserve? This is the phrase we used to use a lot in 2020. You know, Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott and the rest of them, they bought the ticket and now they're going to take the ride. And in the case of the Senate candidates, it goes back to, and we talk about this a lot, 
Mitch McConnell's most important strategist, Josh Holmes, said, oh, we're going to form a permanent governing coalition with the MAGA base. We'll have McConnell's candidates and we'll trick the MAGAs into basically voting for Mitch's candidates. Well, this is what we call the dog food test in advertising. No matter how good your advertising is, if you have bad dog food, the dogs won't eat it. They don't look at the advertising. The MAGAs don't care about the advertising. You can put on the whole show and say, I'm with Trump and all that other stuff. But if you're Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania, the MAGAs are going to go for the actual MAGA crazy in Dr. Oz rather than the guy who is going to try to pretend to be MAGA just in time for the primary. It doesn't work. And so you get Herschel Walker and you get Blake Masters and you get Dr. Oz and, and the rest of the crazies. And so, you know, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik, they want to still play this game in Washington where they go to their friends in the press, their friends in the donor community, and they say, listen, I'm normal. I just have to do this stuff publicly. You know, I've got to keep these crazies in line. You know, I'm still the same person you've always known. And, you know, I'm not one of them. Well, no, you are one of them. If the National Republican Senatorial Committee supports people like Blake Masters, they are that person. If their corporate donors are supporting Dr. Oz, they are that person. If the RGA, which they have now said they will come in and support Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, they are that person. If the corporate donors like Coca-Cola and General Motors and Intel and everybody else that every year whack out a big check to the RGA, and, and you guys all know the price of admission at RGA is seven figures, not six, those people have joined up with a movement they could never control, they can never manage, they can never get through, they can never hope to do anything except fall deeper into the muck pit of MAGA. It is going to keep dragging them down further and further. And again, you, you referenced this earlier. Joe wrote a memo earlier in the year. It's like, the crazy is going to save us. And the crazy is really saving us right now. The crazy is helping us a lot because it is really hard to look at Blake Masters and say, wow, I want this weirdo in the Senate. It's really hard to look at Dr. Oz, who's talking about incest and news about him torturing dogs and basically being a weirdo. It's hard to see that person in the U.S. Senate for normal voters, for even a large percentage of the Republicans in those states. So, you know, we have opportunities here, but McConnell and McCarthy are two people who gambled a lot in the beginning of the year on failure on the part of Biden. And that bet didn't pay off. And they bet that they could manage the MAGAs. And that bet didn't pay off. And this is one thing that we've seen. Joe, amongst Republicans, you know, the I will call it the media set, the elite, which is whether or not it's Kevin McCarthy running around the country saying, if I just have 20, quote, normal Republicans, I can be Speaker of the House. Right. And ask it for people to stroke hundred thousand dollar checks to have lunch with them. And everybody's doing it just in case there were stories in July, you know, when it feels like maybe Ron DeSantis had reached the apogee of his sort of election year press coverage of. The tech bros love him. The donors love him. But, Joe, for some reason, everybody forgets that, like, in the Republican Party, the inmates run the asylum. It's not the elites. It's not the money types. It's not D.C. It's the MAGA voters. Exactly. I mean, even if they accomplish getting 20, quote, normal Republicans, Kevin McCarthy's literally on something to think that he's going to be the speaker. It's going to be somebody like Jim Jordan or Marjorie Three Names because... That's who owns the party. That's who owns the caucus, period. And so I think, as Rick just said, the crazy's helping us a lot. But the other thing that's happening is early on, 
there's a big question about how pragmatic the Democratic Party would be in terms of, you know, in 2018, a really good crop of nominees usually defeated most of the sort of further left candidates in the Democratic primaries. You know, for the large part, that's happened again in 2020. I mean, because when I looked at a lot of these Republicans, particularly Republican women and younger Republicans who really are having problems with the authoritarian streak of MAGA and the extremism, one thing they look when they look across and think about voting for a Democrat for the first time when you're sitting in focus groups and things is, please tell me it's not a crazy Democrat. Just give me somebody that I can like date for one election. Democrats have nominated again a crop of congressional and Senate candidates that are much more like we did in 2018 when we took the House. And I think between the two things, the contrast that Biden set up and Biden's persona sets up with Trump and the crazy that they've nominated with the nominees Democrats have done. And then you have the energy, of course, that we've seen since the Dobbs decision. I think those are the factors that are making this more competitive. Look, by no means is the House anywhere near, it's a 50-50 thing at best. It's an uphill climb in this environment. But I think it's not the sky is falling red wave that most of the punditry has been predicting and some still are. It's competitive and we have to keep doing the work and we don't have to hope they'll keep doing the crazy because they're going to keep doing it. So, Stuart, there were stories over the last week or 10 days that Kevin McCarthy had been enlisting the help of Newt Gingrich on developing a general election policy strategy for the last nine weeks of the campaign. Peter Thiel gives a speech at the National Conservatism Conference, which I don't know if that's some sort of Hitler-Juigen conclave, basically saying the same thing, that the reason why Republicans are starting to slip is because they don't have a positive vision for the future. And it sort of feels like it's probably true, but it also speaks to a thing where, like, what did they expect they were getting when they supported these people? I mean, what did Peter Thiel expect when he supported J.D. Vance, who says women should be out of the workplace, should stay in violent marriages, and he doesn't care what happens to Ukraine. When you've got Blake Masters, another, you know, teal protege who's down in Arizona saying that, you know, 2020 was absolutely stolen from Donald Trump and every other crazy ass thing. And there's counterparts in the gubernatorial side of these things, too. So did they just wake up one day and go, oh, my gosh, we better have something positive for Americans? Or is this just a, a reaction to polling that they see that independents and soft Republicans are eroding badly? Or both? I think it's completely a reaction to a polling. You know, in Germany, there's a saying that if you have nine people sitting at a table and a Nazi sits down, you now have 10 Nazis sitting at a table. And I think that's what's happened with the party here. By accepting these people, you are what you accept. You can't take someone like uh, J.D. Vance, who says he doesn't really care what happens to the people in Ukraine. When What's happening to the people in Ukraine is genocide. So you can't have someone running for the United States Senate in Ohio, a bellwether state in this country, that is basically the pro-genocide candidate and not think that there's repercussions for that. So it's a complete moral collapse of a party. The idea that they're going back to 1994, I mean, it would be like a team that is worried that it's not going to make the playoffs, so they go and get an offensive coordinator from 1994. It's like, I don't know, guys. I think the game has changed. I mean, Democrats have an opportunity here on a lot of fronts. 
there was a time when the Democratic Party was the party of strength in foreign policy, or at least a, a large element of it. Scoop Jackson, John Kennedy. Now you have Joe Biden in this moment, I think, that is going to be studied as one of the great turning points in modern history, leading a coalition to basically save the world. Russia is at war with the concept of a democracy, and that was the great threat that Ukraine presented. And if the Democratic Party can reclaim that standing as a party of national strength, the ramifications of it and definition of the party would be immense. You know, people always say, well, aren't there three parties? And they start this silly forward thing. I've always thought, really, there are three parties in America. There's two inside the Democratic Party. There's like a Joe Biden party and, say, a Bernie Sanders party. And the degree to which those two can reconcile and whoever wins that battle, I think, is going to decide the future, really, of policy in America, certainly, because Republicans don't have any policy. So, Rick, let's go back to something Stuart just noted about President Biden's speech. Now, just as an aside, someone, I was doing a lunch a couple of weeks ago, and somebody asked me, how do you know you're being effective? And I said, you know, there are different ways, but, you know, pre-election to determine whether or not you're effective. But I said, when you've been talking about something for the better part of three years, and then one night the president of the United States gives a speech that y'all could have written, you feel pretty good about the fact that you've had some impact on the world. But let's talk a little bit about how you recognize the effectiveness of a speech like that just based on the reaction of Fox and OAN, which it always comes down, Rick, to process the red lights, the Marines. Now he's a divider. And so, Rick, he's either a bumbling, stumbling, doddering old man, or he's the greatest mastermind, fascist, communist warlord that the world's ever known. Like, give us a sense, being the anthropologist of the worst people on earth, of what's going through their heads when they hear a speech like that. But you have to categorize it into two blocks, Reed. The first block are the professional Republicans, the Washington, D.C. conservative media class, all of whom are in on the joke. They understand the clickbait world they live in depends on them feeding their dumb audience. And I'm just going to say it. A lot of these people are not smart guys. They're feeding their audience the most lurid agitprop they can come up with. And so they're going to say, this speech was a representation of Biden's attempt. The red curtains show his satanic loyalty. The Marines show he will use force against Americans. And it's all bullshit. And it's all projection. And it's all frothing up the base. But it's also playing the refs. It's also the smart ones that the establishment types call their friends at the New York Times or their friends at the Washington Post and say, we're deeply concerned how divisive this speech was in a time we're just trying to heal America. Yes, we're conservatives, but Joe Biden has now made us enemies. And it's bullshit. These people stormed the fucking Capitol. They would have killed senators if they had the chance. Every single one of the people that said, oh, Joe Biden was so divisive, will also say, oh, 1-6 was just a tourist visit. I'm going to vote for Trump again no matter what he said on 1-6 to incite a violent mob to attack our elections and storm the Capitol. They're playing the refs, and they know that the media culture in this country increasingly with CNN, and God love them, you know, I used to do a lot of CNN hits, I probably won't do them anymore, but they have now decided to both sides everything. And so they treat these bad faith attacks as legitimate. They treat these unbelievably spurious arguments as legitimate. And you end up in a posture where nothing that Biden can do is going to get a, a thoughtful response, but it's all going to feed the monster. It's all there to feed the clickbait machine. And so, of course, Tucker Carlson goes on and unironically says, 
how dare this fascist, when Tucker Carlson is, to put it lightly, dictator curious. But you've got to expect this. And Democrats need to stop thinking that, oh, no, we're going to offend the majority of the MAGA base by saying that they've gone full fascist. They've gone full fascist, and you can't not offend them. Joe Biden could come out tomorrow and say puppies and ice cream are wonderful parts of American life, and they would say, how dare he? And you're going to get this no matter what you do. Don't accept the bad faith arguments. You've got to stay on the attack. And the fact of the matter is, if the jackboot fits, wear it. But, Rick, don't you think also, though, that they know, taking probably some of our family members, friends, who watch Fox, that when they hear that, they don't think of themselves as fascists, and they don't want to, and that the people that program the right-wing reactionary stuff know that, and that's why they have to push back so hard, because they have to hold on to that core, because every time it sort of slips outside the cellular wall, it's that much harder to get them back in. You know, not every Republican is a proto or neo or crypto fascist, but all the neo or crypto or proto fascists are Republicans right now. And they know, just like the MAGA problem, which Republican pollsters will literally call it the MAGA problem, they recognize that if you allow these people in your coalition, they're going to probably infect your coalition further. But you also know that even though we live in a sort of a post-shame environment in this country, People still don't want to be considered as being part of the alt-right, being part of the fascist movement, being part of this unbelievably hateful and violent and increasingly anti-American movement. They know the average low-intensity suburban Republican voter, the kind of folks that we talk to very effectively at Lincoln, they know those people don't want to be in that box. They don't want to feel like they're part of a fascist movement, but they also, you know, they're caught in the horns of a dilemma. If you say to the fascists, get the fuck out of my party, they might. And then where are you? So, Joe, we were in Florida late last year, I don't know, eight, nine months ago, 10 months ago now. And there was a lot of sort of down in the mouth depressed, right? We've already lost. It doesn't matter. And I think sometimes we forget that even subconsciously or unconsciously, humans sometimes prepare themselves for who they believe the winning side is going to be in a fight. Now, that seems to have flipped. But once in a while, you still find the people who are like, well, the polling, there's all these stories out now, right? That, to Rick's point about the sort of mainstream media, right? Don't get too happy, right? Which I agree with. But now it's like they have to almost cover their bases in case Republicans do better than maybe we think. But how do we tell our Republican friends, like, you won't win a fight unless you get into it. You won't win a fight unless you stand up. You know, you won't win a fight unless you're committed to believing that you can win it. Well, I think that was a large part of the problem that Democrats had through most of the year. It's just such a belief in the conventional wisdom that the midterms are just what they are, and it's going to be like 50, 60 seat loss. And Democrats started fighting amongst themselves just over bills that it was crazy. But I think that sea change has happened, and it's been a slow, steady grind. But for most of the year, Republican interest and excitement about the 2022 election was much higher than Democratic interest. And that's changed. I mean, there's been a sea change surge where Democrats are now much more interested. I think there is a supreme problem on the Republican side right now. And that is, if they've nominated a rhino, what are the MAGA voters going to do? If they nominated a MAGA, what are the suburban Republican women, those younger Republicans, college-educated Republicans going to do? I just think there is this move right now that Democrats 
see and are trying to take advantage of, and I think the crazies are helping us. But I think that that whole momentum shift really did happen. And maybe it was Dobbs that helped start that, but I think it was going before then. The one thing that happened that made it so bad was people seeing at the gas pump every single day go up, go up, go up. And for the last two months or over 60 days, every day they go to the gas pump, it's going down, going down, going down. And Biden has been, you know, leading the Inflation Reduction Act, other things that I think people are seeing what calm competence looks like compared to the contrast. And as Donald Trump now comes more onto the scene, like I said, 2021, when you had New Jersey and Virginia, it was easy to keep Trump in 48 other places, right? That's not going to be the case these last 60 days. He's going to be out there. He's going to be a constant reminder of what the MAGA extreme is. And I think that's really going to hurt Republicans writ large. I think we saw this in New York 19 when Ryan beat Molinaro. Molinaro was not one of the crazier ones out there. It's tainting the entire party now in a way that even when they do have somebody who's not totally out you know, in crazy land, a Democrat outperforms Biden and wins. So, Stuart, you were one of the chief strategists of the last time a first-term president picked up seats in a midterm, and that was 2002. Rick was there. I was an advance man on the road. That was a national security election. If you're sitting there trying to figure out in the last few weeks how you convince independent voters, low-intensity Democrats, and soft Republicans that they got to get out for the pro-democracy candidate, in this case, the big D Democratic candidate, what are you looking at? I would try to deliver one closing argument here, and that is every Republican incumbent senator on the ballot, every Republican senatorial challenger, every incumbent, I believe this is correct, House member, and every challenger running for Congress as a Republican, all have said that they would vote for Donald Trump and support him if he were the nominee of the party. Even knowing what we know now, even knowing that this is a guy who has taken national security secrets to a country club, that if all but promised to pardon the people who tried to end democracy in America. The Republican Party across the board, including McCarthy, including McConnell, they are saying they will support this guy. So when you vote for someone who says that they will support Donald Trump if he is a nominee of the party, you are supporting Donald Trump as a nominee of the party. You are supporting four more years of chaos. You are supporting bringing someone who was a pro-Putin candidate who said that as far as he knew, Crimea wanted to be part of Russia. In 2016, he said this. That is who you're voting for. That is who you are. So I would make it a referendum on that. And people like Josh Holmes, they are terrified that Trump will be on the ballot again. You know, Trump keeps saying, well, we should have another election. Well, if we had a snap election like they have in England, Trump would get killed. We all know that. Biden would win easily. So I think this is a battle of Democrats should put Trump on the ballot and Republicans are desperately trying to put Biden on the ballot or put anything else on the ballot. But it should be a pretty simple choice that you don't have to think about much. If you want four more years of Trump, vote Republican. So, Rick, in this context, the arrows are pointing up. You'd rather have the arrows pointing up for your candidates than pointing down. 
But why is that also time to give us just a slight pause? You know, we've seen this phenomenon in 2016 and in 2020, Reed, and it is important to remember that polling illusions exist. And in both of those years, you know, in 16, the Democrats were very confident they were going to beat Trump by 20 points. They were confident Hillary Clinton was going to wipe the floor with him. They were going to have enormous gains, etc. They did not. In 2020, same scenario. So it is important that no one let this heady moment in September let them start picking out curtains or taking time off or going on long weekends because now is when the work starts. Now is when the hustle starts. I recommend to our Democratic friends, don't follow what everything that's going on on Twitter and the triumphalism of social media. Get out there, knock the doors, do the grassroots stuff, make the calls, do the social stuff that is necessary to push your audience, your supporters out there to start voting early, absentee, and on election day for turnout. It is within sight, but I don't want people to wake up in the first week of November and say, oh shit, we had this and now what happened? All right, guys, well, we're going to leave it there for today. This concludes the first part of our conversation with Rick, Joe, and Stuart. Until next time, you can follow Rick on Twitter at the Rick Wilson, Joe at Joe Trippy, and Stuart is at Stuart P. Stevens. As always, you could follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on part two of our conversation. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.